Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. All right, welcome to Power Hour. I'm your guest host, Don Watkins. So, Alex, let's uh, dive right in. We're going to be talking a lot about your manifesto, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, but I thought that the best way to start might be to just give it a very high level. What's the problem you're addressing in the manifesto, and what are you giving people as the solution? Um, well, you can think of the problem on a number of levels. I mean, in terms of ultimately, the problem is we don't have nearly enough freedom in the energy industry, particularly uh, the fossil fuel industry. And there is a, a, a very powerful movement to dramatically take away even more of that freedom. And that, that movement is the environmentalist movement um, that fundamentally says that this is an immoral industry, that it has, that its product is not something that we use as a choice that's healthy for our lives, but a self-destructive addiction that is uh, sooner or later going to end up you know, destroying our planet, making it unlivable. Um, etc. And so as somebody who believes the exact opposite of that, that fossil fuels are improving our planet, they will continue to do so in the future, and that it's absolutely essential we'd be free to use uh, many more of them, uh, I, I think it's essential that people understand what, what is the actual truth about fossil fuels. If we, if we add everything up and look at the big picture, uh, what's the truth? So that's, um, you know, ultimately with all of our conversations about fossil fuels at CIP, that's, that's the end game, is to liberate the industry, just as our, our broader end game is to liberate all of human industry from any sort of irrational uh, government interference. Uh, but this essay in particular, the genesis was uh, a meeting of, of a group of high-level executives that I was speaking to, and I wanted to focus, the, the starting point from their perspective was communication. How do they, there's a general recognition within the industry that they are bad at communication. They're bad at, as we can call it, at, at they are bad at, excuse me, uh, what we can call winning hearts and minds. There's a recognition of that. The environmentalists are much better. They're much better, particularly at, at getting people emotionally engaged, that they're better at generating activists um, that there's some recognition for more sophisticated observers that they that they always seem to have the moral high ground that the fossil fuel industry is on the defensive, and I wanted to to synthesize everything that I've learned. You know, I don't know how long I've been studying environmentalism since I was 16, so 17 years. Uh, everything I've learned about the opposition, and then everything I've learned about how to make the positive case. Uh, for energy. So if people read the document, it's definitely directed at executives and communications professionals in the fossil fuel industry. And the goal is just to lay out really, really straightforwardly, look, the reason for all your problems is not that you don't know how to use Facebook. It's not that you haven't trotted out enough jobs, numbers, not that you haven't invested enough money in communications. It's simply that the, the core issue of how people view you, which is are you good or are you not, 
has been strongly resolved in the environmentalist favor in the not category based on this idea of self-destructive addiction. And you've done nothing to counter that. And in fact, your communications uh, reinforce that. And so you need to understand, first you need to understand the moral case for fossil fuels, which basically no one in the industry fully understands. And then you need to make it in a way that truly connects with people's values. Well, you mentioned this idea of the moral high ground, and we'll get into a little bit later the specifics of how the industry gives it away and how it should take it back. But I just want you to, I want to ask you, like, what is this general idea of the moral high ground and why is it important to hold it? Well, and you can observe in many debates um, that one side seems to have a certain kind of advantage that can be hard to put your finger on. And, you know, it's, it, it's sort of the, the expression originates, I think, often in one-on-one -on -one disputes where, you know, one person is really trying, they're having an argument, but it's clear that one person is more idealistic. He's really trying to do the right thing. And the other person isn't doing something that is that great, but he might argue that it's, uh, that it's uh, practically necessary. So I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, so often in, in religion, this this will happen where um, someone will say, let, let's say someone is uh, opposed to uh, premarital sex, which, by the way, I'm certainly not opposed to. But, you know, and their religion says that this is something that's evil and they're saying we should have abstinence. Right. And like abstinence programs. And that person, if the person accepts the religion and that strict interpretation of it, the person who has who's who's after the right thing will have the moral high ground. So someone else might say, "Well, that's not practical." And but there's always this advantage, justifiably so, of doing the right thing because if it's really the right thing, means what you should do. There shouldn't be a conflict between your moral ideas um, and action. So when one side claims that well something is right, but we shouldn't do it, that understandably puts them in this position of of suspicion and so that you can say they have the moral low ground and with the fossil fuel industry it's pretty clear if they say well the ideal is to use windmills and solar panels and we need to head toward a what they call a low carbon future and that's what they're most they're most proud of their windmills even though they're sort of economically useless they feature them on the, their annual reports it's obvious that to the extent that they're doing their real job of producing fossil fuels, they're not doing uh, the right thing. So if they if they argue, hey, let's develop this new um, this sort of new patch of oil sands, they're not going to have the moral high ground. The most they can say is, well, we need this for now until we can get to the good thing. The other side will say justifiably, well, if this is really destroying the planet, we definitely don't need uh, more of it. So the, you know, the moral high ground is is the being in the position of being after the right thing, and it's it's justifiably a very uh, it, it, it's it's a very powerful position because if you're doing the right thing, you should win. But the the issue is you often when people have the moral high ground, the more the morality involved, uh, the, the moral thinking involved is wrong. In the document, you talk about this idea of the industry positioning themselves as a necessary evil, which I found very intriguing. And I, I guess I have two questions. First of all, exactly how do they do that? And second, you, why is it 
I mean, if it was really a necessary evil, if it was really, look, it would be great if we could go to wind and it would be great if we could go to solar, but we simply can't. If that were really true, why wouldn't that be enough to win hearts and minds? Well, I mean, the necessary evil is very much contained in what I was just, just talking about in, in this idea that the good is solar and wind, but for now it's impractical, you know, for some foreseeable future. And they'll say, well, demand will rise by this much. And, you know, as much as we would like to, what they call renewable simply won't be able to make it up. So, you know, this kind of thing. But it's important. So in the idea of, well, we have to do the wrong thing for some time, unfortunately. But notice it's always for some time, at least in, in this kind of context where you're saying, they're not saying the other thing is impossible because if they acknowledge that, if they if the idea were that solar and wind are just sort of bad ways of generating energy inherently, you couldn't, you couldn't hold them out as, as the good. So necessary evil is more precisely a temporarily necessary evil. And that's, and then the whole issue is, well, how long do we need to be evil for? And the moral approach would be to figure out how to, how to, do the right thing as quickly as possible, especially if we think we're making our planet unlivable by what we're doing now. And this is where the fossil fuel industry is in a completely untenable position because their communications teams have the objective of expanding their production. If they don't, then the company loses value, the shareholders get mad, you know, everyone loses money. It's their whole mission is to continue to do their basic job. Um, so the, if, if, if the goal is to not is is that is to get away from fossil fuels. It's completely incompatible with the conclusion. So essentially, you just it's very simply you have two opposite conclusions. One is we need to use a lot less fossil fuels, and one is we need to develop a bunch more uh, fossil fuels. Uh, there are other interesting dynamics when to this to this thing because and I, I indicate this in the article. If you notice how the debate over so-called renewables proceeds. What this, the argument that something is necessary is not the right way to think about it. The, so why do we use, it's kind of like saying, well, if you don't like the iPhone, like, well, the iPhone is a necessary evil. Well, no, the iPhone is a choice. Everything in life is a choice. You know, we didn't used to have this much energy. We choose to use this much energy now. We don't want to make the opposite choice, but that's just an indication that, that this is very valuable. So the issue is, not that we need, or they talk about in terms of demand, as if there's this deterministic fixed need that can't be questioned for X amount of energy. And I would, I, the way to think about it actually is no, individuals are choosing to pursue energy and they, we can expect that they'll continue to pursue more for good reasons, but they don't have to. There's nothing there's nothing necessary about it, and we shouldn't. Necessary kind of puts it into the amoral category, neither good nor bad. It's just going to happen. We can't do anything, and the, this this sets up the environmentalists to respond. Well, well, look. First of all, we don't need to use that much energy. Let's do energy efficiency and whatnot. And also, they can logically. It doesn't make any sense to say, well, it's impossible to replace oil. It's impossible to. Uh, replace gas, you know, to some much greater extent than the people predict, because you don't know what innovation is possible. So the argument properly is for fossil, not for fossil fuels as such to be foisted on us, but for fossil fuel uh, freedom. And, and this, 
it's such a destructive perspective because people will can the the fossil fuel industry then is putting itself in a position of technological pessimism and it's just saying well you're going to need our energy for a while um you know like it or not versus no we produce the best energy in the world by a long shot and we welcome competition um but we certainly do not welcome uh the competition legislating us out of existence and neither will you because you'll no longer have anything resembling good energy. Well, I want to challenge this idea for a second that the fossil fuel industry doesn't take the moral high ground because it seems that in a lot of their communications, they'll come out and say, look, we are an important industry. We're creating jobs. We're creating power that we need. We're cutting our emissions every year. Um, and that they are attempting to grab the moral high ground and yet it seems nevertheless that they're not successful. Yeah, they're trying to grab the moral high ground on the other side's morality, at least in the case of emissions. I mean, the, and, and um, definitely people check out the article at Industrial, I didn't mean to say that in, in an offensive way, people check out the article, but definitely everyone check out the article at industrialprogress.com slash moral case, because I, I discuss all of the, the arguments, Don, that, that you just mentioned. But you can separate these into two categories, because one is is the category of directly accepting the environmentalist standards. If, if you believe that CO2 emissions are primarily a measure of, of badness and of, of a truly profoundly destructive force in the world, then the fact that you reduce them by 10% is not very significant because the people calling for reduction say that the reductions necessary are 80, 85, 90, 95%. So you're just, you're just completely playing into their hand. So the fact that you you could say it with all the seeming confidence in the world, I am so proud that last year we reduced emissions by 0.5% or whatever it is. Like That's not the moral high ground because it's the moral high ground for the other position. So the fact that you have a job in the oil industry and you're saying this, you're just doing the environmentalist job uh, for them. Now, the, the other case is a little bit, uh, they're, they're both interesting, but it's interesting in a different way. So if you take something like jobs or economy, what it's, it's doing, I sometimes call this external justifications. It's justifying things on the basis of things that are justifying an industry on the basis of something that is tangentially related to its core product, but very conspicuously evading the core product. And so it's, it's saying, in effect, let's not pay attention to the fact that we produce oil. We're not good because of that, but we're good because we create, because we create jobs or we're good because we generate money. And in the article, I, I say, well, would you agree with that if the tobacco industries said that? So if they said, well, we're going to double cigarette production next year. So we're going to try to, we have an initiative to double the number of smokers in America, but don't worry, there's going to be a lot of new workers involved and a lot more money will be generated because double the smokers means double the income. So great, it's good for our economy. People would say, no, it's crazy. We don't, you don't want jobs doing something fundamentally destructive. And what they say about fossil fuels is a hell of a lot more destructive than cigarettes, which I think have you know, rational uses, but that, that's a subject uh, for another day. So if you just su substitute cigarettes for fossil fuels and all of these, the, the folly of these approaches uh, becomes evident. It should be no surprise that they don't, they don't win people over. And I think a lot of good people on the free market side or the pro-energy side just have, have been taught to reflexively repeat these job statistics and economic statistics. And those are valuable things, but 
they're only valuable if the core product is valuable and good. So you want to say it in relation to that. And I give an example and I give a, a sort of a hypothetical example of how the Canadian oil industry might talk about oil sands. And I talk about jobs in that example, but it's very much jobs doing something great, jobs transforming this really underground desert in Canada into life-giving energy. And so that 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 be, then the whole process becomes a good thing. It's good that people have jobs, but it's good they have jobs because they're doing something truly productive and good. If they were, if they were cocaine jobs, it would be a very different thing. And you have to be clear on if the other side is saying you're cocaine, you better, to say the least, you better clarify that that's not the case. So what are some other examples of giving away the high ground then? Well, definitely any time you position, you glorify solar and wind as the ideal. I mean, this is, I could rant for the rest of this hour about how much I object to this in, in so many ways. It's because the, the positioning of solar and wind as an ideal is so baseless by any rational or human standard of value. It's completely based on sort of the multiple intersecting corruptions of modern environmentalism. And for instance, the fact that I've discussed many times on this show that they're against the potentially cheap, plentiful, reliable sources of non-CO2 emitting energy, which are nuclear and hydroelectric, and yet those are almost completely excluded from the conversation. Why? Not because if, if you cared about CO2 emissions, th those would be the first things you would be concerned about ramping up, especially nuclear, which is, much, is more scalable than hydro because there aren't, you know, you're not limited by the, the particular type of water site you need. Um, but the omission, so it's completely pandering, not only on the global warming issue, but to all of the environmentalists' other uh, pet irrational fears. So their fear of radiation or their fear of, or the, their belief that it's wrong to change the world by damming a river. And so on. So it's, it's, even by the standard of CO2 emissions, it's, it's, it's completely corrupt. And then this usage of the term renewable, I mean, what is renewable basically just means repetitive. It's this idea that, well, the best scenario possible would be to use a form of energy that we could just keep doing the same thing over and over and never have to think about it. I'd like to know where that idea came from because we did that for hundreds of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years. We repeated basically the same practices and we got the result of repetition, which is stagnation. So the idea of holding repetitiveness as an ideal is the exact uh, opposite. As Don, as you and I have both written, the idea is not repetitiveness, it's, it's progress, which means continually finding new and better ways of doing things, and that includes finding progressively better materials. So the idea that we should aspire to this fantasy of using solar and wind, uh, of using this repetitive form of energy, when it's far inferior to the source of energy the fossil fuel industry produces, that is corrupt. And then even within renewable, it's obviously not true that these are infinitely repetitive in any important way because the materials involved, uh, you know, in terms of rare earth metals and other things are just as quote unquote finite as, uh, as fossil fuels in the ground. So it's this completely, the reason I'm getting, uh, you know, pretty emotional about this is that it is the height of intellectual parasitism and unthinkingness that you are that the best industry and in the energy industry in the world 
is trying to justify itself in terms of the worst energy in the world purely because they are afraid to even think about or question or reflect on these bizarre environmentalist indoctrinations that, again, wants us to sacrifice the best energy in the world and replace it with the worst energy. They don't really want it replaced. They just That's just a rationalization. But force us to use the worst energy in the world, and as I sometimes say, uh, hope for the best. So when you place that windmill on your annual report, you are contributing to all of the irrationality and uh, you know, you're spitting it in your own face and you're, you're promoting this completely anti-progress and, and also anti-fossil fuel uh, ideal. And one lesson I hope people take from, the, not just the show, but the manifesto is whenever you communicate, think of what, the, of what people will take away, which includes not just the words on the page, but what the words on the page imply. So if, if you say, our company is good because we built 95 megawatts of solar capacity, which is, you know, a tiny amount, especially since the vast majority of that isn't, you know, isn't real because it's not working most of the time. And that's how you brag about your relationship to our environment. You are just saying Bill McKibben is right. Well, that... I mean, in one sense, everything you're saying seems obvious once you point it out. But in another sense, like if I was an oil exec, it would seem pretty intimidating. Like, how do I go about not giving up the moral high ground? So like, how can I tell if I'm giving up the moral high ground or not in my communications? Well, the first thing is, to, uh, so the moral high ground, it, I've had interesting experiences with this essay and talking about it because the idea of the moral high ground resonates. And, and, and the reason it resonates is because um, every one of the executives I talked to has been in a position where someone has taken the high ground against them and they, they, it's not a good feeling. It's not a pleasant feeling. They know what it feels like and they want to be in the opposite position. So they want the result of being in the moral high ground, which obviously has a lot of significance in terms of winning people over and not being as persecuted. But the moral high ground is a consequence. So it's not, it's not a strategy. I've heard people talk about like the moral high ground strategy or or we need to take the moral high ground. Yeah, but how? Because the arguments you've been using get you the moral low ground. So the real issue is you need to understand, the reason why it's not called the moral high ground, it's called the moral case for fossil fuels, my essay or my manifesto, is because the first thing that needs to happen before you improve your communication, before you are able to ferret out all the flaws in it, is you need to understand the moral case for your industry. And I, I present the outline of that, particularly the environmental component. There are other, many other components, including the relationship between your industry and happiness, your industry and progress, your industry and health. Um, I indicate those, but I mostly focus on the environmental because that's the most uh, misunderstood. But it's like the real answer is you got to get a little more educated. You need to learn this, the case for your industry that you never really learned. The fact that you're brilliant and hardworking and really, really good at producing oil or coal or natural gas is fantastic. And the fact that you know of many of the benefits is fantastic, but that doesn't mean that you know the full case. It doesn't mean that you know the answers to your opponents. And I think, you know, thankfully we develop better and better materials now at CIP. So I think people can learn or get, get the outline of it more quickly. But the first thing, the first thing has to be not how do I get the moral high ground? 
or you have to realize that the first step is I need to understand the case that will get me the moral high ground. And there, you know, we have a lot of materials. And then, um, you know, uh, CIP works with companies and, and, you know, trains people and discusses ideas and helps apply them. So anyone can always contact me at, at alex at alexepstein.com um, if, you're, if you're interested in that. But, but whatever path you take, understanding on the part of you and your communications team, that's, that's what matters. And then, um, you know, that, that will go such a long way. And we, we get a lot of positive response from listeners to this show who find themselves much, much more effective in different debates. And they're not usually CEOs of energy companies, but they've, you know, they've taken the time to do their homework, to listen to the experts that we bring on, to learn facts. Uh, but I think most importantly, to learn the right arguments and how they all fit together, you know, which they learn from this show or from the book or from the articles. And I would say there's no shortcut. I don't think it takes a huge amount of time. But if every, if every CEO just dedicated like 10 or 20 hours over a, you know, a couple months, I mean, people's schedules are very busy, but it would be an amazing, amazing return on, uh, on investment. And, and I should say there is, there is a level of application that you need professional communicators for, which is part of why uh, we work with businesses and more broadly part of why there's a, you know, there's a communications industry. Um, but sort of before you even know that you need that, you need to do a little bit of homework and, and really decide for yourself, hey, is this moral case right or is it wrong? And if it's wrong, you're going to have a lot of problems communicating. And I don't really understand why you would be in the industry if, if you really think you're destroying the planet. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're you're answering this, but it still strikes me that there's a real question of, like, if there's this thing, the moral high ground, and you know, I'm a CEO and I experience myself always on the defensive. Like, I would want to avoid that, like the plague, and yet it seems that consistently they keep giving up the moral high ground. So, is it just that they don't know how to keep it, or is it that they believe in some sense that they don't deserve it? I mean, I think it varies a lot because you have the people who believe the environmentalist arguments more and then people who are more prone to just, they use terminology like sustainability and renewability and those kinds of things just because, you know, that's, that's the terminology uh, people use. But yeah, I guess I don't, I don't exactly see that problem in mean, my experience working with anyone including ceos is the clearer they are on the issues the more confident they are the more effective they are i think if anything um, one of the reasons why our ideas have resonated with executives are that executives implicitly understand that they're much better than their communications materials communicate explicitly so, th so they uh, um they they just they they're so immersed in the reality of what they're doing and they know the benefits, they know, they know a lot of the benefits, not as much, they don't really think of the environmental benefits enough, but they know a lot of the benefits, they know sort of how, what kind of amazing people work in the industry. So they have a very concrete experience of, wow, I'm involved in something good. And what I'll find often is people who write copy that or even give speeches that are just completely selling the farm and and conceding the environmentalist case left and right and giving up the moral high ground, at their core, 
they don't really believe that much of it. And it's part of why it's very enjoyable to work with them and to teach because it's really much more, you're not working with, it's not like you're trying to teach Bill McKibben or even, you know, someone from 350.org whose whole self-esteem is wound up in opposition to fossil fuels. Humanity's always destroying something. My job in life is to find these productive people and figure out how really they're destroyers. They're not as good as they think or as we think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are people who are doing great things and who know on some level that they are and they need the words. And there's a quote from Atlas Shrugged I really like, and this is almost exact, if not exact, uh, where anyone who hasn't read Atlas Shrugged, uh, as I've probably said before, definitely read it, but where Francisco D'Anconia is talking to Hank Reardon um, at the beginning of the, the novel, Hank Reardon, the industrialist, and, Francis, and Hank says, well, what's the purpose of this conversation? And Francisco says, to give you the words you need when you'll need them. And that's how I think of it. They, they, in many ways, are doing all the right things, but they don't have the words for it. And it really, really matters to have the words for it. So you mentioned uh, a few times this idea of the environmental high ground or when, when taking the moral high ground, the importance of being able to do that on environmental issues. Um, and I think people should definitely read the essay because you go into this in great detail. But I want to spend a little time on it because I think it's so important. What, why is, so what's this issue and why is it so important owning the environmental high ground? And then why have the Greens been able to have such a monopoly in this issue? Okay, well, I mean, moral high ground in general is important. I mean, because, you know, morality is, is all about how do you live your life and, and but also what is, and how does that really impact life? And, and by the you know, moral philosophy I accept, it's, you know, human life is, is the center of it. And you look at everything in relation to, does this benefit the individual's life or does this harm the individual's life? And so that's, that's, understandably that's the power that's 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 an incredibly emotionally powerful realm and if you can show that something is truly beneficial to life that's powerful and if you can show it's harmful to life it's powerful and so within life you have to parse out well what are some of the key aspects of of life or perspectives uh, or yeah aspects of life is a better way of putting it and one and they kind of run together but you can say like happiness uh progress health, productivity, and then environment is, is up there. And part of the confusion about environment is environment isn't thought about very quickly, but we can just say in the very broadest sense, our environment is our, our surroundings. And um, in terms of both, in, we want our surroundings to be as livable as, as possible. So if someone is doing something that's making us choke on the air or get poisoned by the water, that's a very, very big problem. Um, by contrast, if somebody does something that cleans up naturally dirty water or, or prevents us from having to do things like, you know, sit by an indoor fire and inhale a lot of fumes, thanks to, you know, a decentralized coal power plant or gas power plant, they are improving our environment. Of course, we never hear about the category of us improving um, the environment nature gives us, even though nature you know, gives us a potentially healthy environment, but one that, you know, by default is, is extremely, uh, you know, is ex extremely hazardous. So 
it's obviously a crucial issue what kind of environment uh, you live in, and the environmentalist movement, so-called, capitalized on this, particularly initially in the form of looking at different kinds of local pollution, like air pollution from smog or contaminated rivers. And certainly there were um, there was a lack of proper laws protecting people against these things. In some places, sometimes the laws weren't um, enforced. And this became the subject of attention uh, you know, in the 60s and, and the 70s. But what they did was that they, they used that those justifiable concerns to really rationalize the, their real focus, was, which was a, a general hostility toward industry. So it's one thing to say that, that industry is being abused in X way and in Y location, right? And saying like, well, you dumped stuff into this river and you shouldn't have done this. But that's different from industry as such is a negative environmental force. Industry as such is an incredibly positive environmental force. That's why even back then, overall, you know, environments were getting, you know, cleaner and, and healthier, and they've gotten that much more so uh, today. So essentially, the an anti-industrial or anti-development perspective got to be, uh, got taken as a concern for environment, whereas really, if, if we took their advice, we would live in a much more primitive, uh, much more backward, much, much uh, more dangerous uh, environment. Nevertheless, they did they did take over that issue. The other side, our side, really conceded it to them. So they they have this monopoly on concern for environment, and thus people look to them when they when they claim that industry is doing something environmentally bad, including making the planet unlivable allegedly through CO two emissions. They are are taken seriously. They're taken as credible. Like these are the people who know. Uh, about our environment, whereas these are the people who know the least about our environment because they're constantly contributing negative knowledge and and completely distorting it, and they're opposing things, you know, development fundamentally, and development is the key to a healthy environment. You need to change your environment a lot to make it good, and they're really against uh, changing environments. So because they, for various reasons, including the ones I mentioned, they have this monopoly on environmental issues. Uh, on any, they, they always have this trump card to play in any issue. They can say, well, look at what you're doing to the environment, and they're taken seriously. So any, any act of development, really any act of capitalism, they can bring that trump card in and make it seem like something immoral is happening. So you can't, if you're, you know, if you're arguing for your freedom, you can't allow the other side to have an undeserved trump card like that because you're allowing them to permanently own this crucial value issue and that then creates a low ground situation in every encounter you have so and and it's completely wrong they don't deserve it whatsoever so uh at cip we have an expression you need to own all the value issues and this is certainly one that needs to be owned by the people who deserve it which is the people who are improving our environment not the people who are who are making it worse in the name of making it better. So, I mean, in your last comments, you were really putting the environmentalist side on the defensive. And I wonder how important that is. In particular, I think that business is often uncomfortable with, in effect, painting the other side as negative in part because um, 
you know, they could be in effect calling their customers part of a bad movement. So I guess my broad question is just how should one think when taking the moral high ground about how to treat the other side? Yeah, that's that's important. And for for different audiences, it's it's different. So when I'm speaking to this audience, I'm assuming that you've read the article. I mean, most people are familiar with Power Hour. Most people are familiar with, uh, I mean, I think if you listen to enough Power Hour, the environmentalist movement I mean, should be dead to you in terms of in terms of being a credible movement that de- deserves the opposite uh, of support. Most people, certainly, uh, you know, businesses, customers don't have that context. They think of it, I think as Peter Schwartz put it, like as a, you know, public, as a, like, benevolent sanitation uh, commission. So you have to always deal with the, with the context that, that people have. Um, and you don't, and, and I'm, so what I'm doing here is I'm kind of putting the nail in the coffin. I'm making... I'm I'm really following all the implications, which is that the environmentalist movement is bad for our environment. That's true, and I think it's been proven. And but you know, with businesses, they're starting out with new people all the time, and there's no need to do that. You but you do need to fight. But the way to fight is is pretty straightforward. It's nuanced. It, it takes some skill to do, but it's pretty straightforward. Fighting on the moral high ground means you take the moral high ground. You set. You say these are my standards. So for example, you'll say. Like, you know, I'm open, you know, to discussion about environmental concerns about fossil fuels, but I'm not open to discussion about that if they will not talk about the environmental benefits of fossil fuels. And so, you know, anyone who says they're concerned about environment but won't talk about the big picture, I don't think deserves to be part of this discussion. So you can, you can if you set the standard from the moral high ground, then all you have to do after that is observe that the other side has not met the standard and people will draw the implications. You don't have to, you don't have to name all the implications yourself. So, as somebody who wrote a book on the moral defense and attacks on capitalism, I'm interested if you could talk about the relationship between the moral attack on fossil fuels and the moral attack on industrial capitalism more widely, and then from the other direction, a little bit about the relationship between the environmentalist movement and other anti-capitalist movements. Uh, maybe maybe you should be answering that question. Um, so, so can you make it a little bit more? I mean, is there any particular aspect of it? Because there's so much. Yeah, well, let me pick out one aspect that I think is interesting and kind of follows on what you were saying before. So one thing that is very valuable, I think, to listeners of Power Hour and what CIP does is getting a real view of what the environmentalist movement stands for. Not necessarily what every person who calls themselves an environmentalist stands for, but what the movement stands for. And yet it can be hard to really project, like how can a person be anti-technology or not hold human beings as their standard? And I'm wondering if you can put that in the context of broader movements throughout history that that have been similar in approach. Well, I mean, if you notice, I think a lot of a lot of what allows us to truly put a flashlight on the nature of environmentalism as bad is by very clearly defining the good. So if, if we recognize that using fossil fuels is using is a commitment to using the best tech, energy technology we can under freedom, and we're very clear in our minds, then and we think about how that case, we think about things like 
well, of course this is going to change our environment. Changing our environment is a good thing. The only, the only thing we want to minimize is inadvertent negative changes to our environment, which we can call pollution, right? I mean, the goal of, of burning oil is not any like sulfur dioxide or something like that. That's an inadvertent byproduct, but on your but your goal is to impact your environment, is to impact it, it positively. And, and part of progress in technology is you get better and better at, at the ratio of positive impacts uh, to negative impacts. And with fossil fuels, I mean, the ratio of positive to negative is, is incredibly good. So if, if somebody knows how to think about it, and then they see how the environmentalists come to it. The more you know how to think about it correctly, it just seems like this is the most bizarre thing. You, you, you talk about, for example, impact, environmental impact, as if it's a bad thing. But we survive via environmental impact. In fact, every species survives via environmental impact. So you see there's something, there's something very wrong with it. It's not just fishy, because if, if you know very clearly what the positive right approach is, and you have the concepts all sorted out, it's clear there's something wrong with this. Or even if someone talks about like climate change is bad, and you think, well, and you're serious about your precise thinker, this is a completely, inc I mean, climate change is a redundancy, right? Because climate changes by its, its nature. And then if somebody, if somebody is saying, oh no, but man-made climate change, and then, okay, therefore we should shut down fossil fuels. Well, you see that, well, we know that we change environment and including everything has some effect on the climate system, but we have to look at is the change positive or negative. And so if somebody just claims that we've made a change and therefore it's bad and they, won't, they can't say whether it's positive or negative, let alone quantify it, you're very suspicious. This seems like an anti-change approach or an anti-technology approach, not, not uh, a human-centered approach. So with, with capitalism... I think it's very much the same. It's the better, the more you can articulate how capitalism works, what its virtues are, what it really does, the more that people will see, hey, you know, this great regulation, this is really just forcibly interfering between two people who agree to do something. And that is wrong. And you get that kind of perspective once you really understand that capitalism is all about individuals, you know, pursuing their lives in happiness in harmony with others and that, you know, they, own, you know, they have their rights and they, they own their property and it's immoral for someone to come between them. And capitalism is just an aggregate of what, what they do. So the more you clearly understand capitalism, people can check out your book, Free Market Revolution. Uh, definitely, um, you know, I love Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, especially chapter one. Um, you know, to some extent, you can get you can get a lot from reading economics books. Uh, Hazlitt's Economics and One Lesson has a lot of good stuff, um, although it doesn't have the moral the moral perspective. It doesn't really have the enough of an individualistic or rights perspective. So you need to read a bunch of different things to get all angles. But the key is this positive understanding, and then that will very much shed light. And expose the negative. But if the positive is vague and woozy, then it's not at all clear. The negative just seems kind of vaguely misguided versus fundamentally doing something wrong. Yeah. And I mean, all those resources I think are valuable um, at the risk of trumpeting mine. 
in that it addresses something that I don't think often gets addressed explicitly in what you do, which is just this vision of businessmen more broadly is inherently greedy and destructive. I mean, I know I was raised, uh, I was a little bit old at the time, but I remember Captain Planet in which it was just the, the whole theme was businessmen who are polluting as an end in itself. And it was just, it seemed intuitively like it made sense because after all, weren't these you know, people just driven by the insatiable greed. And like, if you have that kind of picture, then the idea that they are responsible for all the negatives in our environment is a lot more plausible. Yeah. And we, we really need to recognize how much damage has been done by the educational system and media. And that, that leads to things like Captain Planet, even just there's so many, and the more I think about this stuff, and I think about it a lot, I mean, the more I, I realize all the time, oh, I accepted this wrong way of thinking of things because I was just raised with environmentalism, not my parents in particular, I just mean the, the educational system and things like like Captain Planet, and even the way people think of the planet. Uh, my friend uh, Jordan Breen, who's, who puts things eloquently, uh, he, he was having an argument with someone on the radio, he's a radio host, and he described the other, the other person was just talking about the planet and Jordan said, it's as if you're just painting a giant smiley face on the planet as if the planet is a living thing. Whereas anyone with common sense knows, okay, this is a rock and there are a million different things on it and there's an atmosphere, but there's no, the planet itself is not a unit uh, of value. And so when we talk about, you know, improve the planet it means improve the planet, make it a better place to live for human beings, but just this, this idea that the planet is really this living thing that can, you know, that can die. I mean, even if all life died on the planet, that'd be bad for us, be bad for anything, but it would be bad for the living organisms. The planet doesn't care. And the more, the more one just thinks about things in common sense, the more it's just, it's amazing how irrational you can be from education. I've, I've in the last couple of days, I've just started saying, you know, the, uh, for instance, with climate, just the idea that climate is super dangerous, which we say just from our climate controlled homes and, you know, pro almost no one knows anyone, you know, who's died from the weather. Whereas, you know, in the past, before we had uh, mass production of energy, before we had mass development, you know, the climate was really a problem. Like the idea that it's really just this sort of like natural terrorist that's going to just kill us at any time. Um, it's just so defies common sense. And I was talking to, I think, an executive and I said, you know, the only way you can be stupid enough to believe that our climate has become a lot more dangerous is if you have, um, you know, if, is if you have, you know, an advanced elite education. If you just have common sense, it doesn't make any sense. So I want to ask, as we kind of come towards the end, um, how did you arrive at this perspective on the, uh, the problem the industry faces? And um, one aspect in particular that I would like to hear about is, you know, the, the subtitle of this is about changing hearts and minds. And I, I want you to talk about like how you think about taking this moral high ground approach and translating that into messages that do change hearts and minds. And 
to give like the most concrete version of this question, is it that, you know, we sit around and do focus groups with people to develop messaging points or what, what is the CIP way of developing the answer to that question? Well, but the, the first part of it seemed different than the second part. So the first part seemed like, how did I get these ideas? Is that, was that it? Yeah. Oh. Feel free to treat them as different questions then. Well, I mean, there's, there's different elements because there's the, the piece talks about two aspects of the same problem because, I mean, the, ultimately the problem is you're trying to persuade people in a certain direction, but first you need to understand very deeply what that direction is. And then there's a lot of, of principles that involve persuading people of the right thing, which I often call values-based communication or moral communication. Um, I mean, in terms of, in terms of understanding these issues, I mean, it's a long, a long chain. I mean, the first person who ever helped me understand environmental issues was uh, the author P.G. O'Rourke, who wrote a book called All the Trouble in the World, which I read when I was 16, and it just blew my mind because he had answers for all of these catastrophes I was hearing about all the time. And whether he was right or wrong, and I think he was mostly right, it just, it, it opened my mind to the idea that, wow, there's, there's another side of the story, and there is something fishy about all this doomsday stuff and I, I just remember distinctive uh, you know parts of it and in contrast to my education which had told me you know population is going out of control catastrophic global warming uh, et cetera et cetera et cetera um, I mean in terms of by far the most uh, I mean Ayn Rand's work on this subject is, is completely unparalleled in my in my view I don't think anyone who knows the, the field can dispute that. Uh, you can check out her book, Return of the, the Primitive, which is a, an updated version of her book, The New Left. Read her essay, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, um, a couple of other really important essays in there, as, which was written as the environmentalist movement was, was rising. And yeah, just, just incredible stuff. And then, and then her positive work, particularly Atlas Shrugged, is just has the, the, I think, exact right attitude toward industry and environment. And I was reading it recently and I was just struck by how much of what um, is in CIP is in that book. And much of the stuff is stuff I hadn't exactly learned explicitly from her, but um, or I learned earlier stuff and I had thought of other stuff on my own, but it was very much in an outlet struggle. And I would say um, the other person I'd, I'd give a lot of credit to is um, someone who you work with, I don't work with anymore, but I used to, uh, Ankar Gatte, a philosopher at the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, he was, you know, he, I got to work with him for a couple of years as I was really developing in energy and, and, and generally gave me a lot of really great feedback and corrections on different things. And he, um, I guess two things I remember. One is he just, he was very good. I mean, very, very good at just treating new concepts that people gave him as guilty until proven innocent. So like sustainability, renewability. I remember conversations on those and he both gave brilliant analysis of those and, and the fallacies of them, but also, um, um, also I got a lot just about how to question those being on the premise of, okay, if I hear this new term that seems fishy, I can't just use, it. I really have to be, uh, on the lookout. Of course, I had some of that already, but he was really the the master of that. I guess still is, and um, also well, just, just to jump in right there. Uh, there's an early power hour that you can find. I don't know if it's on your website, but uh, viewers can go to arc-tv.com, 
and look up uh, an early power. Yeah, it's hour definitely on. It's definitely content. on our side. It's power hour number three. Yeah, which is definitely and and I remember a conversation from before that. That the power hour is great. I remember a conversation before that where he he was definitely adamant about let's take a positive. Let's look at the environment issue from a positive perspective, not focus on environmentalism as bad, but the way in which um, you know industry is is good environmentally, and how if we care about this issue, we should value industry. And that that was really one of the, the final pieces in terms of you know fossil fuels improve the planet um, is something where I had a lot of the pieces in place and was saying it in one form or another, but just to really integrate. Oh no, it's exactly the opposite of what the environmentalists. Uh, say so that was um yeah anyway um so you know ankar has some stuff online about environmentalism if you search ankar gate o-n-k-a-r space g-h-a-t-e um and environmentalism you'll see some good stuff um but i, I wouldn't hold him responsible for what i've done but I, I would just say that um uh certainly um give him a ton of credit for uh you know what i've been able to do well in my work okay so that's that's sort of the intellectual uh, side, which is, you know, giving credit where credit is due and, and hopefully some good resources. Uh, but in, in terms of the applied side, I think, I mean, there, there's a lot to say, but I think it's, I mean, CIP, I mean, one of the things that when, when I conceived of it and, and as I've executed it has just been how to be very results oriented. And one one belief I have about that is you just have to study everyone who's good at communication in every different field. So I study comedians, psychologists, marketers, um, and try to take whatever you can from them. Because if, if you can synthesize the best practices from every different field of communication, you're going to be much more uh, powerful. So you asked about focus groups. Yeah, for sure. I think focus groups are valuable. They just Everything has a, well, not everything, but a lot of things have value. They just need to be in a proper context. So you're not going to learn about the fundamentals of communicating ideas. You're not going to learn about the core correct messages. You're not going to, you know, a lot of that you have to learn through thinking and then a lot of one-on-one -on -one interaction. But once you have that and you have a good understanding of what works and what doesn't, something like focus groups or, you know, split testing things on the web, um, that can be unbelievably valuable in figuring out, okay, what's, what's the headline that's going to get people to view this article? Things like that matter because if somebody, if the headline is no good, somebody's not going to read the article and you can make the best moral case ever, but he's not going uh, not going to read it. And more broadly, there's all sorts of, there's so much optimization possible in communication. So one thing I like about the, the whole CIP philosophy is just that, we have an extremely optimistic view of how effective you can be in communication. And there's so many things that we're getting better at or even that we don't do that, that I know that will make us five, ten, you know, many times more um, effective. But it, it's, there's a hierarchy to all of this. There's, there's, they're not all on the same level. And you need to have the right, you need to understand your case before you can communicate it effectively. But then once you understand your case, there's all sorts of fascinating work to be done in terms of how do I communicate that well? How do I communicate it to different audiences? And again, this is why there's a field of communication. This is why there are professional communicators, professional communications uh, consultants. Um, but I think just as we do that kind of work with this basic 
knowledge as, as the core of what we're doing, so others need to incorporate that basic knowledge in what they're doing. I know it's felt like 15 minutes, but uh, the hour is almost up. I, wanna, I want you to tell people where can they find the moral case for fossil fuels, and then what, if, if they agree with it, what should they be doing, whether they're in the industry or whether they're just somebody supportive of your message? Um, okay, where to find it? Industrialprogress.com slash moral case. Industrialprogress.com slash moral case. So that's, that's easy enough. Um, if you're, well, first let's talk about if you're in the industry. So if you're in the industry, let's just be straightforward. You need to do something. This is an urgent situation. I mean, let's put it this way. If you think I'm right or there's a good chance I'm right, you need to do something. You need to do something urgently no matter what. It's not a good situation in terms of the environmentalist assault on your industry. But if you think I'm right, do not just say that was a good article and then set it aside. I mean, because my article is saying it's very, it's, it's almost deliberately polarizing in the sense of the, what the industry doing, is doing now is in many ways fundamentally wrong. So it needs to do something fundamentally different. And, you know, there are a lot of, of things you can do, but I would just say uh, what I say at the end of the thing, which is email me, alex at alexepstein.com. Tell me what your situation is. And, you know, we can talk about it. it. You know, it depends what position you have at the company, but, you know, you can for sure share the essay with everyone at your company. That would really help. We have lots of resources you can share. Um, in some cases, it'll make sense for us to work with companies. But, like, I'm not hard to access. Uh, I mean, I don't respond necessarily every day. But if this matters, let's talk. And if you're serious, email me and tell me you're serious because there's a lot we can do, both with individual companies but also with forming alliances. Because there are all sorts of exciting possibilities, but it requires that people be... Uh, motivated. So I hope I hope that you're motivated. Now, as for everyone else, you know, read it. Hopefully, read it a couple times. I think it'll help your own own thinking. And anyone you know in the fossil fuel industry, share it with them. Environmentalists, you can share it with them. Um, I, I'm a big proponent of sharing resources. At, at CIP, I like we have the concept go-to resources, which is just a you know a standalone resource that someone can go to whenever they have a question about something and try to create resources that um, have a wide applicability that can answer a lot of questions for someone. So whether it's the Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet book or the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels or Power Hour, you know, share those with people. And I'm sometimes struck by how much time people spend like debating things on Facebook or with their family. But Sometimes the solution is just share. If somebody else is a professional at it, whether it's me or someone else you think is good at communicating, share that with people and ask them what they think and use that. If you want to discuss it, use that as a, as a basis for discussion. But it, it, you know, it sounds too simple, but so much of the change in the world has been by people handing out pamphlets, by people sharing ideas. And you have an enormous sharing capacity no matter what you're doing. And you know, second, maybe only to educating yourself. Uh, that there's a lot of fast ways of uh, of educating others. So I hope if you you read this essay, you become that much more motivated. And from our end, I can promise that you know we'll keep pumping out resources that are are more and more useful to you. All right, thanks, Alex. And I mean, I really do want to urge people to read this. I've written on the moral case for capitalism broadly, but. 
it's just striking to me reading this how clarifying it is about the the detailed and nuanced way in which industry surrenders that and which and, and the ideas that are required in order to take it and how powerful those ideas really can be so i think if there's anything by alex and cip that people should read and really take seriously this is it so i'm very happy we've been able to talk about it and uh, once again thank you alex well thanks for thanks for guest hosting power hour life liberty and the pursuit of energy power hour the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues